Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. What a joyful, joyful worship time. Sometimes if I'm asked to speak at a church after really good worship, I just want to just sit down and just say, let's just keep worshiping God, you know. Bless God, he's good. Thank you for the invitation, Pastor, and it is a joy and pleasure for me to be with you here today to share from God's word. Um, some introductory uh, comments before I pray for our sermon and God's uh, blessing on his word this morning. Um, first of all, I, I've been asked to speak about sexuality. Now, sex is a topic that I think everyone thinks about, some people engage in. Everyone in this room is a sexual being, whether you're sexually active or not. And sexuality is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and most commonly thought about concepts in this world, maybe the most Googled topic on the internet. Um, but my opening statement about sexuality is simply that sex is a good thing because it's a God thing. Sex is a good thing because it is a God thing. You see, God created sex. Sex is not the result of the fall. Sex is not a creation of Satan. Sex is part of God's creation when he created Adam and Eve. And they were what? Naked in the garden, our first reference to anything about sexuality. And scripture says they were without what? They didn't have shame. God created the human body. It is beautiful. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he made it without shame. And they were not shameful. Shame only came after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, after they sinned. There was a sense of shame. And ever since then, sexuality has been polluted, defiled, distorted, destroyed from God's original intent and idea. So many of our cultural problems, even our church problems, so many of our world's problems are the result of sexuality gone wild, being distorted, polluted, disgraced. We have sexual uh, addiction. We have pornography. We have sex trafficking. We have sexual violence. We have sex outside of marriage, before marriage, within marriage. We have sex with all sorts of people. And a lot of times our cultural and family issues are so hurt because sexuality has become destroyed. It has become something that God has not intended. So sexuality is a good thing. Sexuality is a bad thing. There are two extremes I think we want to avoid when we talk about sex, especially in the church. One extreme is that sex is dirty. It's nasty. And there are a lot of people that have shame about sexuality. They can't think about it. They can't talk about it. If you are a parent of a child here, have you talked to your children about sexuality? Sometimes we don't talk to our kids about sex. Sometimes the church doesn't talk about sex because there is shamefulness there. More than embarrassment, there's shame. On the other extreme, we have people that adore sex so much that it becomes an idol. It becomes the most important part of life. This is the Hugh Hefner playboy philosophy of sexuality. It is the most important part of human existence or a relationship. Now, these are two extremes that are very toxic and dangerous. And somewhere in the middle is the biblical call of sexuality, I believe, as God intends it. And I believe as a church and as Christian men and women, we have to recapture that today. 
We have to take it back from the pollution that the world has distorted on it. We have to take it back from the realm of Satan who has totally defiled it with so much perversion and so much lies. And part of it is in our behavior as men and women, but a big part of it is right here. They say the greatest sexual organ is right here, how we think. And there's so much garbage out there. And if the church doesn't speak about a godly view of sexuality, culture will fill that void. Social media will fill that void. If parents don't speak to their children about sexuality, they will hear it. I had one parent once say to me, uh, my child is 12 years old. Maybe I should start speaking about sexuality. I think they're ready. If we wait until they're teenagers, we may have missed the bus a little bit because they're exposed to sexual concepts way before 13 and 12 in our culture. Can we get in front of this rather than trying to mop up and clean up the mess? So that's what I want to talk about today. That's kind of my introduction. So with that in our minds, <laughs> let's pray God's blessing upon that. Father God, I am so honored and thankful, God, that you have called us, you have called me to first be your child, unworthy as I am. God, we thank you that you not only call us into your kingdom as children, but you call us as saints and servants, as ambassadors of Christ, to be light to a dark world, to be salt to a tasteless culture. So, God, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would be the light and salt upon this concept and theme of sexuality this morning. Father, whether we have been on one side of the grid where it has become dirty and shameful and embarrassing, or if we've ever been on the other side where it's become all too powerful and consuming, Father, Holy Spirit, God, we ask that you would balance us in the middle through your word. Give us the right mind, the right heart, the right soul, the right sense from you, the purpose of sexuality from the kingdom of God. And may that purpose reign first in our lives, whether we are single, whether we are married today. Lord, we love you, we look to you, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I want to talk about four purposes of sexuality today. Four purposes. Simply this. Number one, procreation. Number two, formation. Number three, recreation. And number four, illustration. Okay, four purposes of sexuality. First, procreation, right? God created Adam and Eve, and what did he say? Multiply and fill the earth. So part of the reason of sexuality in a relationship that's blessed by marriage is to procreate and to have children, okay? So that's the common reason that many people believe, and I think it's a biblical reason found right in the beginning of Genesis. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who's married has to have a child. Sometimes that teaching is, is said that you have to have a child or else you are not procreating as God desires. Um, some may be called to singleness in life. Some may be called to not have children in life. But in general, one of the main purposes of sexuality is procreation. We wouldn't continue to exist as a species without it, right? So that's the simplest of the points and the shortest of the four. The second one, and though each point will get a little bit longer in focus and time, is formation. Formation. 
we have in Scripture a beautiful three-pronged definition of marriage. Scripture says that when God created Adam and Eve, he gives us this word about what marriage is. What's the formula for marriage? A man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two will become what? One flesh. So we have three dimensions that constitute a God-blessed marriage, leaving, cleaving, and one flesh. Someone says, and the one flesh is the physical, sexual union of husband and wife. Leaving, cleaving, one flesh. Some people like to make it all a rhyme, leaving, cleaving, weaving. If that works for you, you can, you can take that, right? Now, the distortions in our culture about marriage is that sometimes these three prongs or these three legs of a stool are missing one or two. And then we have marital distortion, which leads ultimately to sexual distortion. For example, for some people, we have leaving and one flesh. Now there's three, leaving, cleaving, one flesh. But for some people, it's leaving and one flesh. By the way, leaving, when we leave our parents, it doesn't mean we leave care for them. It doesn't mean that we leave our ability to honor them. But there is a transfer of loyalty. When you and I get married, we leave our parents. They are initially, as our parents, our primary loyalty as children. But when we leave, we transfer that loyalty from our parents now to our spouse. It is not a physical leaving, like, Mom, Dad, I'm never going to see you again. That's not what it's about. It is, a, it is a spiritual transference. My primary, I'll still be loyal. I'll love you, Mom and Dad. But now my primary loyalty is to my wife and to my husband, okay? That sense of leaving. Um, but some people, these three prongs become two if they have leaving and one flesh and they don't have cleaving. The, the word for cleaving is like gluing together. It, it believes the sense of commitment. There are many in our culture that might leave mommy and daddy and might have some hot sex or semi-hot sex, but they never have cleaving. They're not committed. They're not committed. They enter the relationship. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, I'm out of here. We still have a culture where 50% of people who marry end up in divorce. It is no longer the vows that we say till death do us part, but it's till, till you know, you don't make me happy anymore, and then I part. There's a lack of commitment. Sometimes people will never make a commitment to marriage. Some people, when they are married, are only half committed. That's an uncommitted marriage, leaving and one flesh. Then there's cleaving and one flesh. Maybe there's commitment. I'm committed to you and we have physical union together, but I really haven't left mommy and daddy. And here we have marriages that basically we have in-law problems where the spouse is maybe still more loyal to the parents than they are to each other. And that creates a lot of marital mess. Okay. I would call that the un attached, undetached marriage. We have the uncommitted marriage, now the undetached marriage. Then there's leaving and cleaving, but no one flesh. Some people have what's called an unconsummated marriage, okay? And then for some, they just have one flesh. They just have sex. There's no leaving, there's no real commitment. This is the hookup culture, right, where we live. 
which creates a lot of problems. So when God created this triangle of marriage and one sex, one one flesh illustrates the physical sexual union. It is meant to be connected to the other two parts. And when you take any of those other two parts, sex becomes dangerous. It becomes frail. It becomes just a physical thing. And when that happens, it becomes distorted in so many ways. You see, God created this triangle around marriage to protect marriage and to protect the one flesh union. Without the leaving, without the cleaving, sexuality is very frail and can create great harm. You see, God creates boundaries around sexuality to protect sexuality. God creates boundaries around sexuality because he always desires to protect that which is sacred in life. When Adam and Eve sinned, right, they were clothed. They clothed themselves, right? And it wasn't because the body, though it was prone out to sickness and death, it wasn't because the body became intrinsically evil or sex became intrinsically evil, but because the soul became depraved and fallen, the human soul in that state cannot handle a naked body walking around the streets of New York City. We can't handle it, so God allows us to be clothed, to protect that which is sacred. It doesn't become unsacred because of the sinfulness of man and woman. It becomes protected. God protects the sacred. Remember the temple and the tabernacle? They had the holy place and the holy of holies. Who could go into the holy of holies? Any Joe Hebrew person or Josephine Hebrew woman? No. Only one guy could go there once a year, the high priest. Right? God protects it, and there was a sacred protection in time and person, the big curtain between the two. It was protected because it's sacred. We as humans do the same thing. We protect that which is sacred in life. We have a hope diamond somewhere. It's protected. It's encased. We have the gold bullion somewhere in Fort Knox. It's protected by soldiers and barriers. We protect that which is sacred in life. Even children intrinsically know to do this. They have their favorite toy, their favorite doll, their favorite item, and they put it somewhere so their big brother or sister doesn't steal it. You see, we are protectors of that which is sacred because that's God's business. And God puts boundaries around sexuality, not because he's a killjoy Scrooge, not because sex is bad, but because it's so good that he wants leaving and cleaving as part of the protection of sexuality. Because it's so good, God protects it. And because it's so good, that's why we should protect it as well. If we look at sexuality and don't see the spirituality of sexuality, we don't see the sacredness of sexuality. If we don't see the sacredness of sexuality, we'll, we, won't, we won't put a protective barrier around it. We protect that which is sacred to us in life. Formation, our third purpose of sex, recreation. Recreation. I talked about the middle. If we can find the middle, folks, I think we're in a good place. We want to avoid the extremes of sexual shame, sexual grandiosity, biblical sexuality, that's sacred eroticism or erotic sacredness. Putting those two words together sometimes makes people feel uncomfortable. Erotic sacredness. God and sex, do those words go together? 
So I'm an ordained pastor, but also I'm a sex therapist. So when people hear that, sometimes they drop their jaw. How can you do that? <laughs> How can you be both? I never heard of a human being being both. How does that work? As a Christian sex therapist, I ask if I'm working with a Christian couple, I'll ask them, have they ever invited God into the bedroom or Jesus into the bedroom, spiritually bringing a spiritual reality to your sexual life? And some of them would say bringing Jesus into the bedroom would kind of like kill the mood. <laughs> it's like bringing grandma in, you know? And see, sometimes the thought of if we bring God and Jesus into the bedroom, that's going to kill it. Like, that's our domain. But the reality is when we don't bring God and Jesus into the bedroom, we cease to perhaps fully embrace the spirituality of sexuality. Okay. So, recreation. It's for fun. It's for good. Um, I had a pastor ask me two years ago, would you come and preach a series on the Song of Songs? The Song of Songs. Song of Solomon, others call it. It's a beautiful love story about the love between a husband and a wife. Some say it's an illustration of Christ in the church. I think it's both. But it's a beautiful, powerful story. Now, we have great, great verses in Scripture that talk about recreation. Let me turn to one, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, verse 5. This is a, a newlywed verse for those who are newlywed. I don't know if anyone actually follows this verse today, but it's, it makes a good point about the fun recreation of marriage. It says, if a man has recently married, Deuteronomy 24, 5, if a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid upon him for one year. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. And all the women should say amen or a woman to that. <laughs> right? Uh, blessing on two counts. We could go a long time on this verse. But one, you spend time enjoying your marriage, your wife, and your husband. The joy of marriage, including the sexual part of marriage. I also love the verse because it talks about the husband um, bringing happiness to the wife. You see, marriage is a two-way street, folks. When it becomes a one-way for guys only or for women only, it becomes polluted and distorted, right? The guys are to bring happiness to the wife, right? Guys, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, that is beyond heavy. You know, sometimes, you know, guys will trump on wives, you need to submit to me. Well, that's heavy too. But husbands, you, 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 you love your wife as Christ loved the church who is willing to lay down. I know, I know husbands who aren't willing to lay down their remote control <laughs> for the sake of what the wife wants to watch. Much more, will you lay down your life? You talk about submission, service, sacrifice. Man, that is beyond heavy call, right? But anyway, that's going into marriage as a two-way street, which is another topic. <laughs> Let's look at another verse, Song of Songs, the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. So many beautiful verses that talk about the joy and the physicality of the human body and of sexuality. Song of Songs. Uh, 
let's see, chapter 6, verse 6. I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 6. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, O love, with your delights. And then skip down to verse 10 of chapter 7. I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. Come, my lover, let's go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if the blossoms have opened up. And there I will give you my love. It's getting hot in here. Getting hot in here. Do you know this book was sometimes not, it was forbidden in churches throughout church history? Did you know that? Sometimes churches would forbid their, their church members to read from this book because it has some erotic, hot, sacred stuff in it, right? Now, it's, it's dangerous, and I, I commend your pastor for allowing me to speak on sex because sometimes I hear if we talk about sex in the church, that's going to juice everyone up. <laughs> and they're going to get all randy and excited. Whatever hormones they have are going to be multiplied by eight. And then they're going to be leaving, and they're going to give the sacred, you know, holy kiss <laughs> in a way that maybe they shouldn't. And, you know, it's going to get them all excited and nowhere to go, and it's like they can't handle it. You see that thinking, what that thinking says? It's like we can't handle it. If we talk about it, it's going to get us all juiced up, and we're not going to know what to do with it, and we're going to fall, and the boundaries are going to erode. It's because we can't talk about it that that happens. Talking about it creates a context where it says it's safe. And as a church, we need to talk about it, and we need to put some biblical concept to it because we have so much distortion out in society. We need to counteract that message with the truth of God, right? Amen. Um, So if those verses aren't hot enough, let me just read one more. Okay, we're all on recreation. This is our third point. Okay, when's the last time you heard this verse in church, in any church? Okay, uh, Proverbs chapter 5, uh, verse 15. Uh, actually, let me pick it up in verse 18. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her bre- excuse me. Does your Bible have breasts in your Bible? <laughs> mine, mine does. Wait a minute. Hold on. It does. Look at that. I mean, look at that. <laughs> May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. That's beautiful. That's sacred. That's the word of God. This isn't playboy here. This is God's word. But sometimes churches will not ever touch this verse. We can't say breasts. We can't say penis in church. Now, there's a good way for every good way to do it. There's about a hundred bonehead bad ways to do it. But we need to find the good way to do it. Okay, that's sacred. That's honoring to God. So, sex is for Procreation, it's for formation, it's for recreation. The fourth point, and this is perhaps the major point of this talk, it's for illustration. Illustration. What's the most common metaphor that God uses throughout the Bible to describe his relationship with people? More than any other metaphor, more than any other symbol, God uses marriage. 
God says, my relationship with my people, what can I come up with that can capture how beautiful and deep and intimate? What can I come up with and God comes up with marriage? In the Old Testament, right, we are the wife of God. In the New Testament, we are the bride of Christ, right? God uses marriage and the intimacy of marriage to describe how intimate and close God wants to be with us, his people. And not only does God use marital terms, but God has the wonderful, wonderful courage to use sexual terminology to describe spiritual reality. Let me say that again. God uses sexual terminology to describe spiritual reality. When the people of Israel in the Old Testament sinned, God says through the prophets, they have disobeyed me, they've turned from my law, they have basically walked away, and all these other kind of descriptive words. But then God uses sexual language. They have committed what? Prostitution, harlotry, fornication, adultery. God uses sexual language to describe his relationship with his people that have gone astray. And if God uses sexual language to illustrate or describe spiritual truth, and if he can do that without embarrassment, I would say as a church we should be the same. We should not be afraid to use sexual language that illustrates spiritual truth. And here's the illustration. Here's the point. Sexual Sexuality at its best will illustrate spirituality at its most. Or at least it should. In the New Testament, what are we told? Ephesians chapter 5, that great, great chapter about marriage. It quotes at one point, Paul quotes the Genesis passage. And he says, basically, again, the husband should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says this, and this is a mystery. But I'm talking also about the church and Christ's love for the church. Now, hear me, folks. Paul is saying a powerful thing here. He says that marriage in general is a mystery because it points to Christ's love from the church. But marriage in general, but the last point, my, the one flesh union is a mystery. And it points to Christ's love from the church. Sexuality is a mystery that has spiritual import to it. It has spiritual definition to it. It somehow points and illustrates Christ's love to the church. Now that is beautiful and sacred. How do I wrap my heart and my body around that truth? How does the Bible, how does the New Testament talk about intimacy with Jesus? It says again and again, look in scripture, how many times the Bible will say, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. That is penetration spiritually. That is intimacy beyond all measure. Paul says that this is a mystery, marriage in general, and the one flesh union is a mystery because it has spiritual meaning that illustrates Christ's love for the church. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people become circumcised. Why are we talking about circumcision now? We're told in the Bible circumcision is what? Cutting off the penis, the, not the penis, wow. Cutting off the foreskin of the penis, the foreskin of the penis, 
I think on the eighth day for the babies, right? God called Abraham. You want this is what this is a sign of my love and covenant to you. Now, and Abraham did that, and the Hebrews did that, but we're not told why. If I were Abraham, I'd say, "Excuse me, God, I'll, I'll do whatever you say, but like, why the penis? Why not like my elbow?" My earlobe, God, anything, why? And if I was it, Sarah Abraham's wife, I'd say, God, you know, that's cool. I'm glad you're cutting the guy. But, you know, it's kind of the covenant sign to the guy. How about the women, God? How about us? Why did God just give a sign to the guy and not the woman? Why did it be the penis and not something else? We're not told. I'll have to ask God one day. But, you know, theologians... They come up with all these ideas. That's why they get paid the big bucks, you know, these <laughs> people. And so there are a lot of theories out there. Let me briefly give you two. Uh, one is, and they're kind of cool, I, you know, but I think the third one trumps it. But the first one is uh, God wants to take the most vulnerable part of the human body and say, I want you to surrender everything to me, be a living sacrifice, and just say, God, everything that I am, my most vulnerable heart, soul, and part of my body, everything, God, is yours. Now, that's pretty cool. I like that. Give that theologian a bonus check, right? Uh, the next theologian comes along and says, ah, it's okay. I got a better one. I think it means that, that we say, God, my loins, my sperm, my offspring, the generations that come from me, God, all belong to you. Now, we might give him a little bit less money on my check. I don't know about that. Right? And then the third one I heard years ago when I was in seminary. Never thought about it before. But the preacher got up and he said this. He says, if it is true that marriage is the most common metaphor of God's relationship to his people, and if it is a mystery, including the one flesh union, is a mystery that illustrates somehow the intimacy of God with his people, if marriage and sexuality illustrates God's love, Christ's love for the church, is it possible there could be a sexual reading about circumcision. And I'll share this with you for you to consider. Is it possible that the covenant sign never became a sign when man is in isolation? Is it possible that the covenant sign is only there activated when that penis penetrates that woman's vagina? And that moment of the closest physical intimacy that a man and woman can experience, is it at that moment that it becomes the covenant sign? At that moment, is it possible that God says, this is it? This is the deepest illustration I can have of how deeply I want to penetrate the human soul. This is how deep I want to penetrate the lives of men and women. This is how intimate I want to be with you. Is that possible? I think it might be. God has given sexuality as an illustration. It points to Christ's love to the church. It's a signpost. But you know who doesn't like that signpost? Satan. Here's a short little story. Have any, has anyone been to Disney World? Disneyland? Okay. Uh, Disney World, is that Florida or is that? 
That's Florida. Okay. So this guy, this guy, it's sort of about this guy, when he went to Disney World with his family, he was like six years old, and he was all excited. He was like, Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse, it's going to be cool. He loves Mickey Mouse. He goes to Disney World, and he sees Mickey, and he's like screaming, ah. He runs over to Mickey, and, and, and he goes to give Mickey a hug, and Mickey goes to give him a hug, but then Mickey trips and falls on this guy, and, and basically he squishes him, and he breaks his, he breaks his leg. Okay, and now he hates Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and he hates Disney World. And he basically grows up hating anything Disney. And he grows up and he says, one day I'm going to get Mickey. One day I'm going to destroy Disney World. So you know what he does as an adult? He gets ready. He fills his trunk with spray cans, black spray paint. He goes down toward Florida. And whenever he sees a sign, Disney World, 50 miles or 100 miles, he gets out of his car. He, he spray paints it so nobody can see it. He goes down further on 95. Wherever he sees a sign, Disney World, Disney World, all these signs point to Disney. And he wants to destroy Disney. How? By destroying the signs that point to Disney. So he wants to spray him and spray him and spray him and spray him. Okay? What's the sign that points to the magic kingdom? These signs. What points to the kingdom of Jesus Christ? The greatest metaphor in scripture, the marriage in general, and I believe sexuality in particular, are the sign points. Not the only ones, but some that point to the kingdom of Jesus. And who wants to spray paint all over those signs today? Who attacks marriage today? Who attacks sexuality today? When we talk about spiritual warfare, okay, I think one of the places where the devil goes after is to take down marriages, to destroy marriages. If you're a, if you're a married person, you're a target today for the enemy because he wants to take down your marriage. If you are a person, everyone here is sexual, he wants to make sexual polluted and distorted in our lives so it has no sense of spirituality, so that it doesn't point to the things of Jesus. Marriage should point to the things of Jesus, so he wants to mess up our marriages. He wants to pollute and distort sexuality away from the purposes of God, as we're talking about. Here's a Bible trivia question. Have you ever wondered why Ephesians chapter 6 follows Ephesians chapter 5? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe because uh, 6 comes after 5? Ephesians chapter 5 is a great chapter in the New Testament that talks about marriage. What does Ephesians chapter 6 focus on? Spiritual warfare, the armor of God. No other chapter is that concentrated on the focus about spiritual warfare. There's other parts of the Bible that talk about it, but this chapter goes after it, armor of God. Why? Coincidence? Maybe. Or is it possible that Ephesians chapter 6, all that content Paul could have put in Colossians and Corinthians and Galatians, but he puts it in Ephesians right after the great chapter on marriage. Because maybe he knows that marriage is going to be a target. Maybe he knows that sexuality is going to be a target. And he knows that the devil's going to go after that. And we have to guard ourselves. Why? Because we want to protect that which is sacred. 
So we've got the shield of faith. We've got the sword of the spirit. We've got the breastplate of righteousness. We've got the sandals of what? Gospels of peace. We have the belt of... Okay. Now, I don't want to burst a bubble, but there's no belt of truth. When you go into the actual Greek language there, there's no word for belt in that verse. Okay? Um, the NIV, the ESV, most versions, modern versions would say the belt of truth. You go back into the good old King James and some others, and what will they say? Gird your loins with truth. The word belt is not there. Why is it put there? Because people don't want to deal with loins. <laughs> it's too embarrassing. And I think because of embarrassment and shame, we put a belt there. Now, I don't, I don't mean to go to the, the third grade Sunday school room if you have one, and if you have a, one of these cute cartoons with all the, you know, I don't want you to spray paint over the belt and say it's not there. But actually, the scripture is, gird your loins with truth. Now, what are your loins? Your loins are your genitals. Surround your genitals with truth, with the truth of God. Well, that's a different spin than a belt. <laughs> God protects that which is sacred in life, and so should we. So my final challenge to you, which has been God's challenge to me, can we as men and women who are Christians, followers of Jesus, can we reclaim the purposes of sexuality as God declares it in his word? Can we reclaim it? Can we refute the silence in our homes, in our marriages, with our children, in our churches that says we can't go here? We can't talk about it. Because when we don't talk about it, always remember, silence always speaks. When I can't talk about sexuality, I am speaking, I'm too embarrassed. I'm too shameful. Or I don't have any idea how to do it. And folks, if we don't talk about it, again, the world will talk about it. Social media will talk about it. In a way that's going to be distorted and polluted. So can we talk about it? Can churches invite silly speakers to speak about it? Can churches teach about it? Can parents talk to their children about it? I don't know about you. How many people here had this uh, birds and bees talk from mom and dad? Like, raise your hand, really, seriously. You had the birds and bees talk. Look around the room. How many hands do you see? So the question is why? I had mine when I was 30 years old. <laughs> I, was, I was driving to, to my wedding. My wife is English. And uh, my, my dad was in the back seat of the car. He was my best man. And we're driving. We're 30 minutes away from the church. And my dad leans over to me and says, son, I think it's time. And I say, Dad, I know it's time. I'm going to get married in about 30 minutes. He goes, no, I think it's time for the talk. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. 
And I'm saying inside, bring it, Dad, okay. And he leans over to me and he says, son, just do what comes naturally. And I'm thinking, okay, and, and that's all I got. I got six words. Some people don't get six words. I talk to Christian parents, and they don't talk to their kids. And part of the reason is if I talk to them, it's going to get them all juiced up, and then it's going to be crazy. So let's just be quiet about it. When should sex education for children be? I would say you start at age three, four. You don't talk about sexual intercourse positions at age three and four, age-appropriate sexual dialogue. You call it a penis, you call it a vagina, you call it what it is, not a wingy dingy. <laughs> and if you see the little three-year-old boy in the bathtub kind of playing with it, you don't like yell and scream and shame him for it. What message does that give him about part of his body? You don't ignore it, you don't yell at it, you just talk about it. This is a beautiful part of your body. It's called a penis. God's created it. It feels good when you talk about it. Here's some rules about your penis. You know, you can clean it in the bathtub, but you don't, like, you know, play with it, like, in church <laughs> or, or in McDonald's, okay? But it's a cool part of your body, but because it's so cool, we got to protect it, and we protect when you touch it. We have that kind of message, but it's like, I don't know. And a lot of us don't know how to talk to our kids because our parents didn't talk to, to us, so we don't know how to talk to them. But again, when we don't talk to them, who will? If the church can't talk about this, who will? Can we teach it? Can we preach it? Can we have men's groups? Guys, we struggle with this stuff. I, I, I once did a retreat with a bunch of uh, men, about 100. It was a, men, a male retreat, men's retreat. And I went up in my list. I had uh, uh, topics for the weekend. One, one issue was men dealing with lust and pornography. An elder came up to me at the beginning of the retreat, and he said, uh, he said, sir, respectfully, I don't think we need this as an item. The men in our church don't deal with this issue. And I said, really? I said, I'd like to come to your church then. <laughs> I've never known a church like this. And he said, uh, we don't. I said, could you, just, could, you just, uh, could you just humor me and allow me to just do a survey, anonymous, no names on it. And on this piece of paper, I'll just ask, as a Christian man, not BC before Christ, but as a Christian man, have you ever struggled with pornography? And he goes, it's a waste of time. I said, could, could you just do it? You don't, you can, if I'm wrong, you don't have to pay me at all for this retreat. <laughs> Whatever, I forgot what I said. But he said, okay, we'll do it. The results came back, 75% of the guys indicated, as a Christian man, I have significantly struggled with pornography at some point in my life. The other said, I guess you could talk about it now. I guess it's okay. But not only guys, women deal with pornography, women deal with other issues. Can we talk about it appropriately? Do we have accountability? Do we have mentors? in the church, older couples and older individuals. And as singles, it is hard. I was 30 before I got married. Man, I was burning in my 20s. <laughs> that was hard. All my friends are getting married. My older brother getting married, my younger sister getting married. You know how many Christmases I had to come to and they're around the tree with their spouses and I'm there with the dog, year by year. It's like, come on. And then, you, have you met anyone yet? Have you met anyone yet? You want to like slap them. How do you deal with it as a single person? Come on, we're sexual as single people, we feel, and how do you, there's, there's, there's quick fixes out there. How do we deal with same-sex attraction? How do we deal with all that stuff? There's Christian people that never ask for this, but they have this as part of their reality. They don't want to live the lifestyle, but it's part of their reality. How do we deal with that? 
How do we deal with these issues as Christian people? Worship. When's the last time? We, we have worship songs about creation. You know, there's some worship songs about nature, about the stars and heavens. Do you know any of those songs? There are a few. Have you ever heard a worship song about the body being fearfully and wonderfully made, about the human body, how incredible it is? Not just sex, but about the, the whole body. Have you ever heard any worship songs about praising God for the human body? Not so much. It's like, we can't go there. Because if we go there, it's going to be danger, danger, danger. Have you ever heard a Christian song? If sexuality is a gift of God, it's a good thing, a God thing. If it's a spiritual thing, a signpost that illustrates Christ's love from the church. Have you ever heard a Christian worship song talk about that? Why? Because we can't handle it. Or is it because of sexual shame? We don't go there. Again, our silence always speaks. Can we reclaim and recapture sexuality for God's purposes? I honor and I thank the pastors for inviting me to speak. It tells me that their hearts want to continue to grow in this area. And bless you for that, Pastor. And may God continue to bless this church. This church is located in a fascinating part of the world, of this city. And you have great opportunity, each of you, to be light and influence for Jesus, for the gospel, and for this incredible area that the church needs to up its game in and speak. An alternative voice of either sexual shame and silence or sexual perversion where it's exalted as a God. We need to have a Christian voice as an alternative to our culture. Sexuality is for procreation. It is part of formation of marriage. It is recreation. It's erotic, but also it is sacred because it illustrates spiritual reality that's powerful. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. Let's pray together. If there's one thing that's landed in your heart that God has spoken to you, I just want you to take a silent moment and bring that before him. If you feel conviction for anything, know that today God is a God who is full of grace, full of forgiveness. If you're challenged to speak more, to learn more, to have boundaries that are solid because of the sacredness, bring that before him for a moment. Lord, we confess that the blood of Jesus covers us for all of our sin. We confess the grace of Jesus Christ upon our lives today and upon our sexuality, upon our bodies today, as well as our souls. We confess the reality and the truth of God in your word as it speaks life of the beauty, the sacredness of sexuality today. And we confess, God, our need to continue to grow to continue to learn to talk without shame, to pray without shame, to encourage without shame this incredible area of human life. And through this, Lord Jesus, may we have signposts in our lives that point to the kingdom of Christ. 
Lord, for every married couple here, I pray your shield of protection upon their marriage, upon their sexuality. For every single person here, I pray, God, in their urges, their desires, their longings, that, God, they would shield that with boundaries because it is so sacred. God, give them courage, give them strength, give them support one with another. And, God, for this church, may we continue to grow and honor you in this area of life, and may we be a light and salt in New York City where sexuality has so many deviant manifestations. Oh God, may we, may we be your people that show the world something different and powerful, erotic and sacred together. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at Life Center NYC or YouTube at Life Center Church NYC.